Please keep your Bibles open. Uh, I, we won't have the Bible references on the screen this morning, so you'll need your Bibles open in front of you as we uh, dig into these two profound chapters of God's Word. Let's, uh, let's pray again. Our Father, we thank you for your Word, and we ask now that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, one of the uh, joys, I guess, in inverted commas, of school are uh, our school reports. We're coming into that time of, uh, of the year where teachers are up to their eyeballs in writing and checking and correcting reports, and already there's teachers in the room who are starting to sort of twitch and thinking, why on earth is John reminding me of this? Um, it's a lot of work. And uh, perhaps it's more work than it used to be because of the way things have changed with writing reports. It seems that teachers can no longer kind of just say things, uh, say it how it is. Uh, things need to be phrased uh, positively. Uh, otherwise, you know, we might hurt poor Johnny's feelings or, or maybe Johnny's parents' feelings. Or, or, and so the, the job for the, the parent is to decipher what is really meant. Now, Don, I'm just realising that I don't have the little clicker thing. So um, I wonder if you could uh, dig that out of my, my bag or Craig's on it, in the front uh, pocket. Um, but see if, uh, while Craig's doing that, just um, go to the next slide and uh, see if you can decipher what this means. Your son has a remarkable ability in gathering needed information from his classmates. <laughs> that translates to, next slide. Oop, nope, go back. Back one. Oop, and one click. There we are. He was caught cheating on a test. <laughs> next one. Karen is an endless fund of energy and viability which means the hyperactive monster can't stay seated for five minutes. <laughs> or this one. Fantastic imagination, unmatched in his capacity for blending fact with fiction. <laughs> Next one. He's definitely one of the biggest liars I've ever met. <laughs> Next. Margie exhibits a casual, relaxed attitude to school, indicating that high expectations don't intimidate her. The lazy thing hasn't done one assignment all term. <laughs> or next one. Nick thrives on interaction with his peers, which means he needs to stop socialising and start working. I'm getting a little commentary from the interpretation from the, from the teachers on my left. Um, next one. John enjoys the thrill of engaging challenges with his peers, which means he's a bully. Next. An adventurous nature lover who rarely misses opportunities to explore new territory, which means... Your daughter was caught skipping school at the fishing pond. You know, once upon a time, teachers could say it how, how it is, uh, but now they kind of need to tone it down, just right, obscure it in sort of positivity, uh, which maybe sometimes is a, is a good thing because some pretty terrible things have been said on school reports, some pretty wrong things have been said, such as this one, next uh, slide, of Albert Einstein, he will never make anything of himself. <clears throat> Gee, teacher got that run wrong. Next one, of uh, John Lennon. Certainly on the road to failure. Or next one. He has glaring faults, and they have certainly glared at us this term. English, bottom, rightly. That's Stephen Fry. Or next one, I love this. He has no ambition about Winston Churchill. Well, I think he found some. Or this last one. Writes indifferently, knows nothing of grammar. Charlotte Bronte, author. Sometimes teachers do get it wrong. I think that's all the slides, so we could probably relax um, now. <laughs> you found it, did you? <laughs> Thanks, James. Oh, the old one. That's all right. 
Um, oh, no, there is. I think there's one more slide. Thank you. All right. Uh, sometimes teachers get it wrong. What we have before us this morning is, if you like, it's a report from Jesus on seven churches, which he sends home to them via John. Now, unlike today's politically correct, positive doublespeak, Jesus doesn't mince words. It's blunt. It's direct. Uh, He gives them an assessment of how they're going and he tells them what they need to do. Uh, He writes to these uh, seven churches, uh, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Uh, These seven churches, which were seven places in the ancient world, but actually these these seven letters that we have before us in chapters 2 and 3, they really form one report for all the churches. It's one message to seven churches. Uh, Last week, just look back in chapter 1, verse 4, it says that this is uh, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This is is, uh, one revelation to the seven churches. And in 1, verse 11, Jesus said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So it's addressed to them all. And at the end of each letter, it says, for example, in 2 verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the intended audience is is general. Uh, What's more, as uh, as Ben talked about last week, the the number seven in this this style of uh, apocalyptic uh, literature, seven is, is symbolic of God's perfect, complete number. And so this is... Uh, a report for the, the sevenfold, for the complete church of God. Which what that means is this is a report for us. For us to read and to, to hear what the Spirit says to us. Well, I don't know if you came to church this morning expecting to receive a report card. Um, and how do you feel? How do you feel when you're about to, to open a school report, whether it's your child's or perhaps for those at school or your own. Uh, maybe excited, maybe fearful, maybe disinterested. What about when you re- read a report from Jesus? Can I suggest the mindset that we should come, to, uh, come with as we come to this part of God's word is one of, of being engaged, of being humble, of being ready to listen? Because actually, unlike any school report where we might think, well, they don't really know what they're talking about, this author knows what he's talking about. And he's definitely worth listening to because this author is none other than the gloriously exalted Lord Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son. And he holds the promise we saw last week of blessing. 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So hearing and taking to heart what is written here, this will mean we are blessed. All right, so what does Jesus say? Let's, uh, let's uh, get into it. There's seven letters to these two churches. Uh, but before we look at them in detail, I'll just give you the kind of the, the structure. There's a, there's a repeated pattern for each of the seven churches in the way that, that, that it's formed. So firstly, in each of them, there's a commission so Jesus addresses the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Uh, angel just means messenger. 
Uh, and so, the, uh, and Ben mentioned last week, Jesus is, chooses to, to deliver his message via angels, which I think is, is significant. I mean, he could have just written, to the church in Ephesus, right? But he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I think the presence of angels signal, signals that this is serious business. This is, this is news from the king. The Lord Almighty is delivering his message to his people via his messengers. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamon, etc. Here is what to write. So first there's a commission. Then it says something about Christ, the one whose words these are. These are the words of him who... And then it describes Christ in, in uh, an aspect similar to the vision in chapter 1. Uh, him who holds the, the seven stars in, the, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands in Ephesus. In Smyrna, him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. In Pergamum, him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Thyatira, him, the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sardis, him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Philadelphia, him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Laodicea, him, the the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Each letter begins with a description, a reminder of the author. Now that's significant. We need to to hang on to that as as we look through this and see what this says. These, we need to remember who these words are from. That's the second part. The third part of the pattern is the commendation. Jesus commends the church for something. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your love, your perseverance. He commends each of the churches except for one of the churches. It's just so bad that there's no commendation for them, but we'll get to that. Jesus commends them. Uh, fourthly, he criticizes them or, or commands them to do something. And fifthly, there's a call to hear. For example, 2 verse 7, whoever hear, has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And lastly, there's a consequence for those who conquer. To the one who's victorious, I will give. And then it, it uh, includes a promise of the coming kingdom that's held out. So that's the, the pattern that we see through each of these letters, the, the commission uh, from Christ, who commends and criticizes, who commands and calls to hear, who gives the consequence for the conqueror. Sorry, I couldn't just resist the alliteration. There's the, there's the framework. Now, what does each what does each say? What does Jesus say to the churches? Well, I want us to. We're going to work through each of these fairly quickly and just draw out some of the details in each letter and draw some application for us. So, firstly, Ephesus. What's the report card for Ephesus? Well, they're doing okay. Verse 2 says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Tick. They're working hard. They're persevering. And verse 3 says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Tick. And they stand up for the truth. They stand against false and wicked teachers. And Jesus commends them for that. Verse 2, he says, I know, uh, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And in verse 6, 
Jesus says, but you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says Jesus. Jesus commends them for their intolerance of wicked people. They have some backbone and say, no, that is wrong. And Jesus says, that's right. It is wrong. And you're right to not tolerate it. Now, I think perhaps this is something we need to listen to in our kind of messed up, supposedly tolerant society where you're not allowed to tell anyone that they're wrong unless they're a Bible-believing Christian, then you're allowed to. In fact, you, you know, especially if they post something from the Bible on Instagram, you really must say that they're wrong. Our culture is messed up. And I think we should ask, how, if, we've, if we've bowed to the culture that says, well, what's right for you is right for you, and, you know, and, and we can all believe different things, um, it's all okay, as long as nobody says that anyone else is wrong... Except, as I said, Bible-believing Christians, I mean, they are clearly and obviously and offensively wrong. Uh, in that culture and that context, do we bow to the pressure of our culture and not only refrain from saying, this is right and therefore that is wrong, but do we take it actually further and refrain from thinking, this is right and therefore that is wrong? I think it would be very easy for us to bend to the pressure of our culture and just quietly tolerate wickedness and false teaching. But this should not be. If Jesus was writing the report card on us, would he commend us because we cannot tolerate wicked people and false teaching? Or because we hate the practices of the such and such, which he also hates. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus because they stand firm against false and wicked teachers because they exercise discernment. That's a good thing, and Jesus says, well done. But, verse 4, here's the critique. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. It seems that they've lost something of their initial love for Jesus or for his people. Perhaps they've replaced love with, with a cold, mechanical, just going through the motions. Perhaps their actions are simply not loving. Jesus commands them, verse 5, consider how far you've fallen, repent. And do the things you did at first. Get back to basics. Get, get back to basics of love for Jesus, love for others, love shown in action. That's what we should strive for. Now, do we, need to, do we need to hear this? Have we lost something of the love that we had at first? What about Smyrna? Now, the, uh, the Smyrna believers, well, they're being smashed. And Jesus says, hang in there. Hang in there. Keep going. Yeah, actually only has, he only has encouragement for Smyrna. Uh, he says, I, I know what you're facing, verse 9. I, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These uh, believers are being attacked. They're, they're being slandered by people who, who say they're Jews, that is, they claim to be God's people. But actually, in reality, they're in league with Satan, the devil. 
They're being slandered, they're being attacked, and Jesus encourages them. He says, I know your poverty, but you're actually rich. You're spiritually rich. You're in my kingdom. You've got the victor's crown coming your way, so hang in there. But he warns them. What's coming? Verse 10, he says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus calls them, and, and he calls us, to not be afraid of opposition, but to be faithful, even to the point of death. Now, opposition, what this means is opposition and suffering for the sake of following Jesus is not some sort of bizarre anomaly that, you know, it happens. We go, what the heck, where did that come from? That's, that's what's to be expected this side of heaven as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Now, the opposition that we face is fairly, is fairly mild and, and subtle, especially compared to what our brothers and sisters face in other parts of the world, but there is opposition to Christ and to Christians. And it begs the question of us. As we read of the church in Smyrna, it asks the question of us, will we be faithful in the face of opposition? Whether it's uh, opposition at work, at school, within our families, whether it comes just by being openly Christian, being known as a Christian. Well, we do that even if that means that others will look down on us, exclude us, or think differently of us. I think opposition to, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, opposition to Christ is, is increasing in our culture. I mean, just two days ago on Friday, it was uh, the, the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Interphobia, and Transphobia, also known as I-D-A-H-O-B-I-T, Ida Hobbit. Um, I think Wear It Purple actually worked better as a name, but um, at schools and workplaces were encouraged or required to take part and support an awareness-raising and fundraising campaign that actively seeks to promote and normalise LGBTIQ sexuality amongst the youth of our society. They're targeting schools, they're targeting, particularly targeting uh, religious schools and wanting to, to bring about enforced change and restriction. Opposition to biblical Christianity is increasing in our culture. It's a far cry from being imprisoned and beheaded for following Christ, but we mustn't think that we can live as followers of Jesus and not experience opposition. In fact, the Scriptures tell us to expect it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So will you follow Christ, even in the face of opposition? Smyrna Christians did, and Jesus said, good on you, keep going. The victor's crown is awaiting you. The Pergamumites, like the Smyrnans, well, they were also copying it. Jesus says, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Wow, what a way to describe a city. That's Pergamum. That's where Satan has his throne. Uh, they're under attack, but they're, they're standing firm. Jesus continues, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness 
who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So even in the face of death, they remain true to Jesus and he commends them. But his report on them points out a few potential growth areas. Uh, That is, Jesus says, verse 14, I have a few things against you. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. If you um, look up Numbers 25, you can look it up later. It says the Israelites worshipped Baal, the, the god of, of uh, prosperity, and they, and they committed sexual immorality. They pursued the god of, of prosperity and pleasure. And uh, Numbers 31 tells us that, that Balaam had a hand in this. He was enticing Israel away. And so the Christians in Pergamon, they're falling for the same trap. They're, they're being caught up in worshipping false gods and committing sexual immorality, uh, which might also be what the Nicolaitans were, were on about. We don't really know much uh, outside of these, uh, these chapters. But verse 15 says, Likewise, in the same way, you also have, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What does Jesus say? Well, verse 16, Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Jesus' word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And if he comes against you in judgment, it's not going to be pretty. So Jesus says, repent, stop, turn around. I've got to ask, are you living in Pergamon where Satan has his throne? Are the gods of greed, of sexual sin, calling out for your worship? Are you giving into the enticement of pornography? Is it corrupting your life, rewriting your brain? If so, stop, repent. Are you giving into the lure of wealth? Does your desire for money shape and distort your priorities? Are you feeding yourself the food sacrificed to the God of greed? If so, stop. Repent. Pursue contentment. Generosity. Jesus warns if you don't repent, there's a double-edged sword coming your way. Jesus doesn't tone it down. He doesn't wrap it up in doublespeak. He says it how it is. What about Thyatira? Well, briefly, it's, it's similar to Pergamum. It's, it's mixed. On the one hand, they're going well. Verse 19, uh, Jesus says, I know your deeds, uh, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. But they also tolerate a so-called prophet, Jezebel, who, like Balaam, misleads Jesus' servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This so-called prophet is misleading God's people and Jesus warns that judgment is coming her way and the way of anyone who follows her. It's full on. Jesus says, verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely because they... Uh, Sorry, unless they repent of her ways. 
I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. If you rebel against Jesus, the exalted Son of God, and continue in that unrepentantly, in the end, it will end badly. Sardis, four down, three to go. How's the report card faring? Well, Sardis is likewise a mixed bag. Uh, End of 3 verse 1, Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What should they do? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Wake up. Jesus says, it's a favourite verse for preachers, isn't it? Wake up! And you get to preach it every so often when you preach Revelation 3. You're falling asleep on the job. Actually, you're falling asleep on the job of listening to God's word. Or you're falling asleep, so to speak, as a Christian. Are you about to die spiritually? If so, wake up. Strengthen what remains. How how do you do that? Well, it's by remembering, Jesus says, what, what you've received and heard, holding it fast and repenting. See, being a Christian is is about remembering, hanging on to what we've already received and heard. It's not it's not about moving on to some sort of new, higher novel teaching or calling. It's about remembering the gospel of Jesus, which we've received, which we've heard. It's about holding it fast and repenting. And some in Sardis are doing that, as it says in verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Number six, Philadelphia. Jesus only has praise for them. And yet they're not a picture of power and strength and success. And no, They're weak and fragile, but they're faithful. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus knows them and he will keep them. He will protect them even through the, in the face of opposition. Well, lucky last, Laodicea. There's a saying, save the best for last. This is not it. The Laodiceans have, well, we could say lots of uh, room for improvement. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Wow. 
Have you ever gone for a glass of water, stuck it under the tap, filled it up and took a mouthful and you go, oh, it's lukewarm? What do you do? You, you spit it out or you, at least you contemplate, what am I going to do with this mouthful of disgusting <laughs> lukewarm water? Should I spit it out? That's Jesus at this point, asking that question of the Laodiceans. They're neither hot nor cold. They think they're rich, maybe materially, maybe spiritually. But the report card from Jesus is spiritually. They're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Friends, is is this us? It may not be. But you've got to kind of ask the question, are we lukewarm for Jesus? Going through the motions, giving lip service, thinking and maybe saying, oh, yeah, we've got it all together. And depending on our wealth, depending on our riches, our ability, our self-sufficiency, at the same time giving in to the pressure around us, the pressure within us to compromise, to sin, to deny Jesus. Are we lukewarm, self-sufficient, Jesus-denying Laodiceans? But what are we to do with this? It's a bit of a tough read, isn't it? Uh, What do we do with this report card from Jesus? I mean, is it just kind of a kick in the pants and sort of just do better, will you? No. We actually need to see this well, not just as a kind of random list of how to do things better, how to improve ourselves. This is actually the word of the glorious, risen, exalted Lord Jesus. I mean, that refrain that begins each of the seven letters, these are the words of him who. Reminds us who's speaking. As Mel reminded us in that kids' talk, what did John do when he saw this vision of this Jesus? He fell at his feet as though dead. That's an understandable and kind of appropriate response. We should remember who is talking to us. But we should also remember and see what it is that Jesus is doing. He's not just coming at us with a big stick to kind of smash us, even though that may be deserved. No, this is the same one who, in response to John falling down dead, reached out his hand and touched him and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys. And he holds out this promise of life, of blessing, of victory beyond this world. This world with its trials, its temptations, its opposition. He holds out that promise of blessing if we hear our Lord's word and take it to heart. This isn't just a kick in the pants. This is Jesus dealing graciously with us, calling us back to him. Which is what he does, even with the Laodiceans. In chapter 3, verse 18, He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. What should we do? We should come to Jesus and recognize he's the source of true riches. He's the one who who can clothe our nakedness with victory. 
He's the one who can open our eyes to see, to come to Jesus. He is the Lord God before whom we should rightly bow. But he is also gracious. He loves us. See the next verse, 3 verse 19, to those whom, uh, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. This honest appraisal of the church, it's not real pretty. In fact, it's, it's pretty weak. But out of love for us, Jesus rebukes and disciplines us. His motivation is, is not to smash us, it's not to destroy us, it's to lovingly rebuke and discipline us. So what should we do? Verse 19, so be earnest and repent. Repent, stop, turn around. The call throughout this letter, these seven letters is to repent. It's the same call, repent. Because actually that's the nature of becoming a Christian and that's the nature of continuing as a Christian. It's in the face of our sin to repent, to turn back to Jesus, to ask for forgiveness. But this isn't a suggestion to sort of take it or leave it. No, Jesus is standing at the door of your life and he's knocking. Here I am, verse 20. I stand at the door and knock. Are you going to answer the door? You'd be wise to if you realize who's knocking. And if you do, look at the wonderful promise. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, the blessing of, of hearing his voice of, of stopping, of repenting, of opening the door to Jesus, is that we'll live with Jesus in fellowship with the glorious, exalted, risen Lord Jesus. Life will still be a struggle in this world. We'll still be opposed. We'll still be tempted. We'll still be weak. We'll suffer. And that's why he's written to us. That's why he's given us this letter. But in the face of those struggles, he tells us to listen, to repent, to, to love him, to love others, to, to change our godless behavior, to get rid of sexual immorality and greed, to stand up and to own the name of Jesus, even if that invites ridicule and opposition. The glorious, exalted, risen Lord Jesus is speaking to you and to me. We should listen to him. Here's a suggestion this coming week. Why don't you read this letter that he's given you? Read Revelation 1 to 5. Those five chapters, five days. Read one, one chapter a day. What we've looked at so far and, and looking ahead to what Ben will preach on next week. Reflect on what we've looked at and to think, what is it that I need to hear? And let's remember though, that promise of 1 verse 3, blessed are those who hear the words of this promise, prophecy and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Let's pray. Our Lord God Almighty, our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, 
We want to thank you for speaking to us in your word. Thank you for this letter to your church, this letter to us. Father, in so many ways, we are weak, we are sinful and selfish. We've not loved you nor loved others as we ought. We have chased after the gods of this world, wealth, pleasure. We've compromised our allegiance to you. And Father, we come before you and ask that you would forgive us. Lord Jesus, clothe us, clothe our shameful nakedness with your righteousness. Give us eyes to see, to see who you are, our creator, our saviour, our God. Give us eyes to see who we are, your humble servants and your greatly loved children. And Father, we thank you for your love, even for the rebuke and discipline that flows from your love. We thank you for persisting with us. Please lead us to repent, to change, to look to Jesus and follow him day by day. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.